This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. People love to read about lawyers, particularly fiction, and there are many lawyers out there who think they've got some great stories. So, how hard is it for a lawyer to get a book deal? I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal podcast. Joining me are Robert Barnett, a partner with Williams and Connolly, who represents authors including Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George Bush, Jonathan Karp, the executive vice president and publisher of Simon and Schuster, and Hillel Itali, who is a publishing writer for the Associated Press. Mr. Karp, what makes publishers want to read a book proposal all the way through, rather than toss it after the first page? There's usually something about the voice that's irresistible, um, or there's an idea that just hits you in the solar plexus. I remember years ago we had a an author named Poe Bronson, and he, uh, he'd written a couple of novels that had been successful and well-reviewed, and he had a title for a book that he wanted to call What Should I Do With My Life? And uh, he wrote a proposal in which he told stories of people who'd answered that question for themselves, and it was irresistible. And we signed it up off of a proposal and it became a number one bestseller. And I often thought that the reason that book worked so well was just because he asked a question that everybody was wondering, and he, he answered it in interesting ways. All right. And I am curious, generally speaking, is writing a book proposal the first step to trying to get published, or are there other ways to go about getting a publisher's attention? Well, I would. I actually think that a proposal is a very good way to start, but well before that comes usually an incredible experience. And even even fiction is usually informed by um, an author's life. So I think it usually is a good idea to have lived or studied or done something that is distinctive and stands out from what other people have done. And Mr. Barnett, you've worked with many lawyers over the years as a representative to getting published. Are there storytelling techniques that many in the profession who want to be authors think are great, but they don't really work very well with books? I think that about 70% of the lawyers I know think they can write a book, uh, whether fiction or nonfiction. All the time people come up to me and say, everyone thinks I should write a book. And I say, is any one of them a publisher? Usually the answer is no. It's as hard for a lawyer to write a book as it is for a politician to write a book, a sports figure, a fiction writer. Uh, you have to be able to write, and as Jonathan Carp rightly says, you have to have a great idea. And although a lot of people, and I, I certainly admire their attempt, think they have a great idea, very few of them do. Uh, to write a good novel, you have to be able to what I call write fiction. That is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I wish I were talented enough to do it, and I'm not. And you also have to have a plot and characters and a beginning, a middle, and an end. And a lawyer, same as anyone else, has to go through that process before a publisher like Jonathan Carp is going to pick up the book and before a writer like Hillel Atali is going to write something about it to help publicize it. And um, unfortunately, very few who score, particularly in the difficult publishing environment that we currently live in. I have a question for all of you. 
I am curious if you think writing workshops are useful, and I'm speaking of ones that you don't have to be accepted to. You can just sign up and join. And if so, which ones do you think are useful? Mr. Talley, what do you think? Well, what do you mean? I mean, there's certainly famous writing workshops like, you know, like Iowa. Right. Um, or in terms of just going into any sort of summer class or something like that, um, I don't suppose it hurts. But I think in the end, really, you know, you, you're going to A, need, as, as everyone said, you're going to need some kind of an experience and, and talent. And from there, you're just going to need to be able to make whatever connections you can make that you can bring it to a, a publisher's attention. So just simply, you know, are there any kinds of communities that you can go and, and learn and, and work on your writing? But I'm not sure if that's going to give you a special leg up as opposed to an MFA program, which can, can really offer an advantage to you because publishers pay attention to those programs and agents do. Mr. Karp, what do you think? Well, uh, can I be the one to tell the Scott Turow story? Do either of you want to tell it? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Scott Turow wrote a, a really good memoir about his experience at Harvard Law School. It was called 1L. And um, then he decided he wanted to write fiction. And as I understand it, he, he had, I think, read a lot of Saul Bellow. And I think he'd actually gone to a writing program. I think he participated in one of the top writing programs. And he wrote the first draft for Presumed Innocent and uh, sent it to a very well-regarded editor, Jonathan Galassi. And as I understand it, he passed on the novel, but sent a very encouraging note. And Scott Turow did a revision, and Mr. Galassi passed again. And I think the third time around, Presumed Innocent was acquired, and then it became one of the best-selling novels of the decade. So Scott Turow did all the right things. He wrote nonfiction. He wrote fiction. He went to writing programs, and he also endured rejection. And I think that actually enduring the rejection might have been the uh, the most pivotal aspect in his success because he uh, he rewrote and he he made it better and that probably is the most important thing that a first novelist does is is to revise. Right. Yeah. I mean, the writing program can certainly help. I mean, any way you can improve your your work and get feedback, it can help. But you know, as John's saying, you need all of those other things. You really have to have tremendous drive and determination and, and, and a willingness to listen, to, to, to be able to say, you know, I do need to work on something here. I think Dr. Seuss was rejected 30-some times. Oh, there's so many of those stories. You know, there's so many famous books that initially uh, were rejected. Hmm. So you can't give up. If this is what you really want. You have to keep doing it and revising and... I think really good writers tend to be pretty compulsive. You just have to be. I mean, to, to undergo, to write a novel is, is just an incredible uh, commitment and, of time and energy, and you really have to be driven. And, uh, and hopefully that kind of drive it comes along with talent, and that drive comes with a, a determination that somehow your work is going to be seen. And, Mr. Talley, do you think one needs an agent to get a good book deal, particularly if the writer is an attorney? Um, I would say in, in, in almost always you do. I mean, there have been stories recently about sort of people who have done it on their own. There, there is this young writer, Amanda Hawking, uh, from Minnesota, who uh, I guess they were sort of uh, vampire novels that she published herself. 
and built an enormous online following and so great that uh, she was on the bestseller list on Amazon.com and eventually got a deal, I believe, with St. Martin's Press. But that's the exception. That's really the exception. Uh, in general, you really do need the agent. You know, I, I think publishers, you know, the, the vast majority of books publishers acquire, that's how they're acquiring them. The, the, the agent is, is, a, is a pretty essential step. Okay. And I have a question for all of you. What sort of trends are you seeing now in book contracts? Uh, Mr. Barnett, do you want to start? In the contract? We don't want to bore your listeners. <laughs> you probably mean in publishing in general? Yes. Uh, well, publishing is in bad shape. Uh, it's down 30-some percent in most places. Uh, Borders has closed 200 and some stores, and most people think it'll be double that. Uh, the ebook is changing fundamentally the economic model of publishing. Uh, people are trying to figure out how to make it positive. So it's very difficult right now for people who aren't well-known public figures, established writers, to get books published. The, the mid-list, if you will, which is the first novelist or the small-selling nonfiction book, is very hard to get published right now. Happily, there are alternatives to the, the big publishing houses like Simon & Schuster where Jonathan Karp works in university presses and think tank presses and places like that. But the problem there is they print only a few thousand copies. They don't put much behind distribution and promotion, and the author ends up dissatisfied. So it's a very – I would say the trend in publishing is sadly down with the exception of the big book, fiction or nonfiction. Right. If you're an up-and-coming author, chances are the advance you're going to get is going to be smaller than it was a few years ago. Um, that, that certainly seems to be a recent trend. Can you give me a sense of what size would the advance be for, a, 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 say, a first-time author who isn't famous? That's like asking what does a house cost. It uh, depends on the house. Okay. There's no way to answer that. I think the average advance for a book in the United States is something like $10,000. And the average sale is about 10,000 copies. Uh, that's that's pretty small. And if you're a, a president of the United States, you get, talking nonfiction now, you get one level. And if you're um, academic writing about the global warming, that's another. And it, it's strictly a function of what you're writing about and what demand there is among the publishers for what you propose to publish. I know that as a publisher, um, uh, paying $10,000 for a book sounds exactly right to me. Um, unfortunately, I have never had the pleasure of paying $10,000 for any book represented by Bob Barnett. But, and, and, you if, know, I, and if I have my way, you never will. I would like to actually hear about that book. That All right. And in this market now, what tends to be selling better, legal fiction or legal nonfiction in the legal genre? Well, legal nonfiction, I can't even think of what that means. You mean books about I would think most of the bios about famous lawyers. Well, oh, there's a big one out on Clarence Darrow. There are two big ones out on Clarence Darrow. There are two, John, John Farrell and someone else. Uh, oh, I think fiction is, is always, almost always going to overtake nonfiction in almost any category. We have um, we have a couple of uh, lawyers who've written books for us. Um, one of them um, is by um, 
David Stewart, who um, who was a lawyer for 25 years in Washington and, and decided to um, turn his attention to writing full-time and has written a series of nonfiction books on American history um, about the trial of Andrew Johnson and on the, uh, the first constitutional convention, and he's got a new book coming out on Aaron Burr. And mm-hmm. I think that his career as a lawyer has helped him understand, you know, the origins of the country and, and uh, you know, he's bringing the flair of a novelist, you know, to biography. And we hope that eventually he'll have the same kind of career that, that people like uh, Walter Isaacson and Doris Kearns Goodwin have had. And then in terms of fiction, there's a uh, another attorney named Ron Liebman who's written a book called Jersey Law. And it's it's a novel, it's a comic novel about, about uh, lawyers in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, so I think that you know, there are all kinds of ways of taking your legal experience and, and applying them to writing. The ones I think that have sold best are the John Grisham's, the Scott Durow's, now Michael Connolly is huge, who are professional fiction writers who write about legal dilemmas, issues, trials, etc. And And those three, just as examples, are terrific writers. And also, if, as has been the case with all three of them, the novels get turned into movies, then there's a whole life for the paperback and the backlist, and it is a real engine of, of economic productivity. If you are a good fiction writer and you can write in the legal genre, as mentioning those three, you could do very well. I think in any genre, you know how to tell a story. And um, certainly if you're in the legal field, you know, the, the, you have so many stories and such natural built-in drama in, you know, in any given case that uh, if you have the kind of talent to shape a story, you know, you, you should have a lot to work with there. I represent uh, James Patterson, Mary Higgins Clark, Stephen White, all of whom write uh, very big-selling fiction books, and uh, they occasionally are legal in the sense that they involve a crime or they involve a mystery or they involve some sort of terrorist dilemma, and uh, it's not strictly always trials, but those people uh, in, in the mystery and the suspense area also, I think, feed the same readers who read the Grishams and the Connollys and the Tarots. You know, the um, the legal thriller or the legal suspense category became enormously popular Really, I think beginning with John Grisham, I think he's the writer who's credited, you know, most, along with Scott Turow, for really making that a broadly popular category of fiction, where you had a lot of lawyers writing novels about lawyers. And I think that that, that category, because it's now very well established, it's it's not as, um, you know, there's not as much excitement about it, just because I think people have gotten used to it. And I think in the last few years, there have been there's been a lot of... Um, excitement about different categories like paranormal romance. The success of Twilight has made vampires very popular. So maybe what's needed is paranormal (laughs) legal thrillers. I mean, maybe we need some lawyers who are also vampires, although some people might say that's redundant. I actually went to to law school with two or three of them. I think I the proposal like is shaping like up it. as we speak here. <laughs> there's also a, a there's also a whole other category now, Scandinavian. Ah, yes, of course. Started by Stieg Larsson, but now you've got ten other 
people, some of whom are quite good actually, who uh, are in that space. It, it's not trials, but it's legal. Yeah, but that's issues. what we need. We need a Scandinavian lawyer who's a vampire. It'll be huge. <laughs> John, if that trend starts, I expect you to call me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, speaking about those sort of trends, I'm very curious. Mr. Itali, what are you seeing with people going from blogs to published authors? There's uh, a lot of lawyers of blogs. You know, uh, there certainly is, has been that in recent years. Probably the most famous case, I guess, must have been, what's her name, Julie Powell. Where you had Julian, you know, that became the book in the movie Julian Julia, where she had a blog that attracted a large following and and eventually became a book. I think it's just the way online works is is if you attract a large audience, a large following, people are interested in hearing what you have to say. That becomes what they call in publishing a platform. Uh, it gives you a big advantage because it means that. It's not difficult to get readers to know who you are. You're sort of already established. Um, I think maybe the tricky thing is whether you have what it takes to be able to actually expand from a series of posts and actually put somehow put that together into a whole book. I think that's you know maybe a matter of, of the individual talent or having a particularly strong, you know, editor who can really work with you and turn that into something larger. But if you develop a large online following, you certainly have an in there. That that's certainly a big advantage for you. Going from a blogger to a book writer is a big leap. It's a big leap. Maybe you just have talent that's been untapped that you can develop. But it has happened, you know, it's not impossible. But, you know, it's it's certainly it it takes a lot more work. And I wanted to share with all of you, there is a paranormal lawyer blog called the Undead Bar Association. <laughs> <laughs> See, we already someone beat us to it. All right. <laughs> I spoke too soon. <laughs> Mr. Burnett, this next question is for you. When you have a client who has a busy professional life and they have a book deal, what sort of advice do you give that person in terms of carving out time to work on the book? Well, my first advice is don't give up your day job until you've <laughs> uh, experienced a lot of success. If you commit to write a book, you have to be true to the publisher and true to the contract and take the time that's needed. Very few practicing lawyers get and execute book deals. Most of the lawyers who write books are book writers. They're not full-time practitioners, maybe they're part-time practitioners, or they take leaves. I think it's hard to combine the fiduciary duty to client representation with the lonely and, and difficult process of writing a book. I seldom see people succeed combining the two. Okay. I'm curious, Mr. Karp, have you seen situations where a lawyer signs a contract and it doesn't work out because he or she can't or won't do what's needed to get it done? Um, no, I haven't. I mean, I agree with Bob Barnett. I think that um, it, it is a full-time job writing. It's kind of it's, it's an interesting contradiction because I've found that um, novelists are happier when they're doing something else in addition to writing because if they're locked up in the room all day, they get so invested in their work that sometimes it it becomes problematic, you know, in terms of having a balance in life. But what they tend to do to balance their lives out is to teach part-time or to write for magazines and, and have work that they can 
surround their fiction with without having it interfere too much. The only writer, actually the only lawyer I can think of who I signed up while he still had a job, it was, a, it was when I was a young editor at Random House, and, and he, it was a book called The Evolution of Progress. It was a nonfiction book, and he just had this very interesting idea of writing about the history of progress. Um, economic progress and, and um, scientific progress, and uh, he wrote it in his free time, and it took him a long time. Yeah. And he did, and he did, by the way, also take a leave. Mm. So I, I think that you know, you, you really, you, you should assume if you're going into it that you know it's it's going to overtake your life, and you should either give yourself a lot of time, or be willing to get up very early in the morning, or work weekends, or whatever it takes. Now, we touched a bit on how electronic publishing is affecting with the book contracts and the industry. I'm curious, Mr. Itali, how are the tablets and the Kindles, et cetera, what sort of new ways are they bringing in to consume books and perhaps particularly legal-themed books? Are you seeing anything there? Well, certainly certainly what they're doing is they're making books more affordable and convenient. You can sort of be anywhere and uh, you suddenly have an urge to read a book, and you can have it instantly and cheaply, uh, certainly cheaply than, let's say, a hardcover book. So I would say this certainly affects any genre, and uh, certainly I, I think maybe John would agree that there are, you know, the so-called genre fiction like romance or fantasy seems to be especially strong for e-books. So, um, I mean, in terms of, like, legal thrillers, say, Kindles and Nooks, it seems to be very popular to read them in that format. I think there are two big questions with the ebook. First is whether it will expand readership and book buying or simply cannibalize the hardcover sales. If it's the first, that's great. If it's the second, all of us who have involvement in publishing, I think, will find it very negative. The other question will be whether the economic model, if e-books expand, can sustain the edifice that is publishing. So if the publisher gets less on a wholesale basis for vending an e-book to a retailer, they will then have to employ fewer people, probably pay smaller advances. Fewer people will be able to sustain careers as writers because of the smaller advances, and the edifice could collapse. And I think those two questions are, to me, the big ones, and I don't think anyone yet knows the answers to those. No. I mean, certainly I think publishers are certainly trying to do what they can to, for instance, uh, see the physical bookstores make it, but yeah, oh no, th- those are the great questions that that, that certainly um, certainly people in the industry are, are dealing with. Mr. Itale, do you have any predictions in the next two years? What do you uh, think the popular legal theme books will be? It's hard to know. I, I'm not sure if there's going to be any radical change in the next couple of years, unless there's some kind of radical change, say in in the news in the world if suddenly um, maybe if a legal case comes out there that makes people rethink the legal profession, you know, gives it a different image and um, the thrillers can play off of that. But I'm not sure if there's going to be any uh, great radical change in the next couple of years. People just, you know, they enjoy a good story, you know, interesting characters, a case that 
sort of has suspense to it and, and maybe sort of has something to say about, you know, uh, about people and, and how people interact. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to change a lot in the next couple of years. I think what what will evolve, I agree with Hillel, I think what will evolve is the content. So, for instance, uh, James Patterson's new Alex Cross novel called Kill Alex Cross, uh, which comes out in a couple months, is very much up to date with the real issues that face us on the terrorism front. My client Daniel Silva's new novel, which comes out this coming week, called Portrait of a Spy, is, as you will see, about as ripped from the headlines, to use that phrase, uh, as you can get. So I think that what's happening in the real world will cause the excellent and leading writers of fiction to discuss those trends and events, and that will evolve. I don't think, to me anyway, the, the basic model will involve as to suspense, as to trials, as to mysteries, and the other type of, of books that legal can fall into. Well, the real world, for instance, when uh, Osama bin Laden was killed, I, I, uh, it was sort of a subgenre of thrillers, which was about finding bin Laden. Yeah. And so instantly, well, you know, you can't write that story anymore. Are you getting romance books of Navy SEALs? Oh, I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that on the on the nonfiction side of things, I mean, I know that I know that we've been talking mostly about fiction, but we do we a lot of people are expecting um, next year's Supreme Court to be uh, a historic year in terms of some of the decisions they're going to make, and um, uh, specifically with regard to health care and the constitutionality of it. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some some legal histories suddenly becoming very popular. We're going to be publishing a book in February um, by a law professor named James Simon on FDR and Chief Justice Hughes and their battle over the New Deal. And I could see how a book like that could be particularly resonant. And there was another, it was a terrific one, I think came out last year by Jeff Shessel uh, about the Roosevelt and the Supreme Court as well. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that makes publishing so interesting is, is you never know a book that can come out a few years ago can and maybe only sell not a lot of copies, something can happen and that book suddenly becomes relevant. A, sim a simple example of that is all these Navy SEAL <laughs> books which, have, which were <laughs> right. written in the last few years and all of a sudden they didn't sell much, but now they're selling and they're on the bestseller list. Or look what happened with John. You would know with, with Team of Rivals, where you know, uh, which had already been a big book, but Obama comes in and he hires, you know, he brings Hillary Clinton into his cabinet, and he, the phrase Team of Rivals is used over and over, and and that book is right back up in the bestseller list. Exactly. We loved that. <laughs> <laughs> so did Doris Kearns Goodwin. <laughs> yeah. I have a question for all of you. It seems it's. So many people tend to think that they hate the legal profession, but they love reading books about it. Why do you think that is? Mr. Karp, could you go first? That's a great question. I think that uh, lawyers perhaps use fiction as an opportunity to be more creative and to say um, all the things that they can't say to their clients. That's my guess. I, I would say, having practiced law for 37 years, which is what I mainly do, People hate lawyers until they need one. 
Then you wouldn't believe how they love lawyers. <laughs> Mr. Tolley, what do you think? I think as someone who has not practiced law, um, I think in general we're always sort of fascinated by people who might do things that we haven't done, and, and, and you just sort of follow that. It's almost like when people follow the foibles of celebrities, and, and you're sort of like, God, I can't believe that person did that, and I would never do that, And but you want to know more. You know, you, you follow it because there's just, there's just something there that gets your attention. Also inherent in legal matters are the things that make for a good story, good and bad, uh, tension, power and non-power, characters. So the legal milieu is a perfect place to put stories. And what people buy when they buy novels is a good story, something they want to read. They don't really, I think, think a whole lot about whether it's a medical story or a legal story or a terrorism story. If it gets a good review and it's by an author they've read and like, or it's uh, written about by Hillel or seen on the morning shows, they're going to pick it up. Whatever the subject is, it's really whether it's a compelling read. It's difficult in these economic times to get people to spend $30 of their hard-won disposable income on something that isn't a sandwich or a gallon of gas. And so you've got to have a compelling story, fiction or nonfiction, before people are going to plunk down the money either online or in a bookstore. I think sometimes what's interesting is, is when you come upon a book that you didn't necessarily start because you were thinking about the legal profession, but it includes that. I mean, I had just been reading the the, the second volume of, of Robert Caro's big series on LBJ, and in the second volume, the big focus of it is is LBJ's uh, Senate race in 1948 against Coke Stevenson, which ended up to be highly disputed, very close disputed vote count, and it basically reads like a legal thriller because they have to go through all of these procedures with the Supreme Court, and, and Johnson took on a very young then Abe Fortas uh, to represent him. And you read it, and it's just like a legal thriller. You know, the, the I, I would argue that the best readable nonfiction, including by people like Jonathan Karp and my mutual client Bob Woodward, Carol, you mentioned, many others, uh, read like novels. They're right. great stories. They have characters. They have tension. They have resolutions. They have dilemmas. They have moral quandaries. And uh, I agree with you, Hillel. The best of nonfiction often reads as a great story. Thank you all so much for your time. We really appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.